everybody. You are listening to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast, where we will be tackling real financial issues so women can eliminate fear and take charge of their lives. I am your host, Kimberly Davis, and I am the Fiscal Feminist. So let's get to it. What you're experiencing wasn't guilt from how I'm hearing it. It was a fear of not getting external validation or a fear of what other people will think of you. So the next time I challenge any of your listeners, you say, oh my God, I'm guilty. Check yourself. Are you in violation of your personal code of conduct? Are you in violation of your values? Are you actually just really scared of what other people are going to think of you? That's fear, not guilt. It sounds logical. Like we should all know that, but we've had all this stuff like so ingrained in our heads and it's not just my generation. It's younger people. We still are trained to feel guilt if we disappoint somebody, but it is not about guilt. You're right. It's about approval. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. This is going to be a great podcast, and I'm very excited about it because I am interviewing Randy Braun, who is an author, and she has just released a book called Something Major, The New Playbook for Women at Work, and it is a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And It's a really great conversation and it's very aligned with all the things that we talk about here at The Fiscal Feminist. And I'm super excited to get into this because as I've mentioned before to people, I think we are as women somehow going backwards instead of forwards in all the things that are expected of us professionally and personally. And it leads to a lot of people being exhausted, burned out, and just wondering how the hell they're going to become more successful and productive in this vicious cycle. So Randy is an expert in empowering women, and she's going to talk us through many things today. But thank you, Randy, for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you've been doing a book tour, and thank you for taking a few minutes, precious minutes out of your schedule to speak with the audience today. Welcome. Kimberly, I'm so excited to be here. Well, let's start at the beginning You are now a sought-after thought leader. You've been featured in all kinds of publications, the Washington Post, Forbes, Parents Magazines. You have a company called Something Major where you talk to organizations about improving the lives of their employees and productivity. You've talked to Fortune 500 companies, healthcare companies, startup companies, law firms, public relations, et cetera, et cetera. So let's just start at the beginning. How did Randy Braun get to be the Randy Braun of today? What was your journey? You know, it's it's so funny, Kimberly. I always tell people I was the accidental coach and the reluctant entrepreneur. You know, my husband and I years ago, I still watch, but we would watch, watch Shark Tank. And, mm-hmm. and I would just sit there and think to myself, God, I would never want to be an entrepreneur. Um, and now I've had my business at the time of recording for almost four years. It's just wild. Um, so basically, Kimberly, you know, and this ties so much into what you talk about with your audience about money, that, you know, I had my two kids in two years and six days, which was a little aggressive. <laughs> um, if anyone's listening and thinking about that, it was a, a touch aggressive. And, you know, at a time, Kimberly, where everything we know from social science shows us from a research perspective that my income should have stagnated or even decreased. I actually doubled my compensation in those two years and six days through advocating for a promotion in my first pregnancy and moving on to a bigger, badder, better paying opportunity on my second maternity leave. 
And Kimberly, I'm recording with you today in Washington, D.C. And here's the thing. I'm a native New Yorker, but I've called Washington home for, you know, a few presidential administrations now. And what I can tell you that people don't know about D.C. is it's actually just the world's biggest small town. Yes. And so word kind of got out around my story and people just were asking me for my advice. I'm a natural connector. And quite a few conversations later, my husband was really a big driver and saying, I think you need to turn this hobby into a business um, and look into coach training. And, you know, look at me now. A few years later, I do this job full time. My book, as you mentioned, hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller book, one of the few books by women for women to hit that list. So it's a big honor. And that's my origin story in a nutshell. I just I love this work. And now that I'm doing it full time, I couldn't imagine any other life for myself than waking up and dedicating myself to advancing women in the workplace every day. So let me ask you a quick question about the business itself. You seem to help not only teams, but do you help individual women if they want to do one-on-one coaching with you as well as entrepreneurs? Absolutely. You know, my business, Kimberly, it's split about half and half about working with individuals through things like coaching and group programs. And, you know, we just came off at the time of recording our annual retreat at the Four Seasons, which was amazing. And then I spent about half of my time working with, you know, what I call our institutional partners. So it's companies that bring me in for training or offsites who bring me in to do client facing events um, or conferences who have given me the privilege of keynoting from their stage. And then so if anyone wanted to do a consulting with you, they would just go to something major website and then they can reach out to you through that channel. This is Women Supporting Women in Real Time. Thank you, Kimberly. Yeah, somethingmajorcoaching.com. If you're listening and you're interested in knowing what it's like to talk about coaching or bringing me into your organization, all my contact info is there. Kimberly, thanks for plugging that. Yeah, also, I'm curious. So what did you do at the Four Seasons Retreat? Uh, that sounds like like a really, uh, re, you know, nice place to go and retreat. I'm going to have to fight Disney for the trademark because these retreats might be the happiest place on earth. Um, we call it our something major realign and recharge retreat. We run them twice a year. Sometimes we do them private label for clients who want to bring their own clients or their, their own VIP stakeholders. But for us, um, we do them twice a year for the something major community. And Kimberly, it's a day of professional development and leadership development, networking, yoga, wine tasting. And so we spent our morning, um, if I could just tell you a little about it, because it dovetails with what's in the book, digging into some of the content that's in the book about the five self-care myths that hold high-performing women back. And we all left designing our own reimagining well-being, leadership, and longevity game plans. And then, like I said, we did wine tasting. We did yoga. We did networking. We did some more workshop work. We had women in tears telling me what a transformational day it was. So Kimberly, I hope that you'll join us the next time that we have one. Yeah, I mean, I think it sounds awesome. How many women attended this? Yeah, usually we um, were somewhere between 20 to 22 for the day. Oh my God, that sounds to me so wonderful. And okay, so now I want to dive in because I think a lot of the things that you say are really, really important. And I have made it my personal you know, I'm a wealth manager by day. That's what I am, a managing director and a partner in a, in a wealth management firm. But then I started this platform because I wanted to reach out to women of all economic strata and help everyone not to make some of the dumb mistakes I've made over the past 40 years. And also to like take charge of their life and 
kind of reject this notion that we have to do it all, which was very prevalent in the 80s as the women's uh, movement kind of unfolded back when I started working in 1983 as a lawyer. So I like the fact that you address a lot of these things because, as you mentioned in your book, you know, we will probably achieve gender pay equity in about 135 years. So, which is a backslide of an entire generation pre pandemic. Pre pandemic, the gap, the World Economic Forum yes. uh, estimated was only 99 years. I say only. Only. <laughs> only a century. Only a century, you know. <laughs> But, you know, like you and I were talking about a few minutes ago, it's like, I share your concern that we're moving backwards. So back to your question. Yeah. And so there are so many things, but I always say that women are working backwards in the workplace now. I don't know why we can't seem to just keep moving forward, but there are always either political uh, you know, legislation that just doesn't ever help us or no one cares about it, or we have our rights, our individual rights keep getting smaller and taken away from us. And and you mentioned in your book that you think the system is broken. And I would like you to explain what you mean by that. And I also love that you, the other thing that you said, because I think this applies to a lot of women who are just really tired, is that there's a void between flourishing and depression. And, you know, I think women, and there's so many things we're going to get into the book about perfectionism and so on and so forth, but we take on so much and, and like, for some reason, we can't seem to unravel a lot of anachronistic thinking that has been just embedded in our heads since the beginning of time. But tell me why you think the system is broken. You know, you asked me a little bit about my background a few minutes ago, Kimberly, and here's the thing. I grew up professionally in sales and business development before I had my own company. So what I learned when I had my corporate job was something very important, which is that the numbers don't lie. That's what I learned growing up in sales and BD. The numbers don't lie. And it's not my opinion that the system is broken. You just have to look at the data. Right. So we talked about some of the data already. Right. We know that the um, the gap to achieve a gender pay equity has extended the length of an entire generation. We know that women have left the workforce in droves and are continuing to leave. And this is what's the most concerning to me at the senior to the middle to senior leadership positions, which has so many ricochet effects that we're not even going to feel until my first grade daughter enters the yeah. workforce. Right. We know right. that percent of women are not bullish on their career outlook. Um, and we know that we have made the most embarrassing, if we can all even call them strides, towards you know leadership and equity for women of color in the workplace. You know yeah. what I mean? If you look at the pay gap of what Black or Asian American women are making in the workforce or Hispanic women, it's, actual, it's a national embarrassment. And so for me, it's like, when I sit down, write this book, Something Major, The New Playbook for Women at Work, it's based on so many years coaching women who are at the top of their game, but they don't feel like they're winning. Right. And the other thing I think is amazing is that when you were pregnant, you managed to turn that on its head and, and parlay it into a better job, more money. The motherhood penalty, when most women have babies, their pays go down by 4%. And when most men have babies as fathers, they, their pay goes up by 6% because people still think men are in charge of, you know, making sure that the family is financially solvent. And so you really did something that is going against all the numbers. And that's something you need to keep telling people can be done. You don't need to apologize for being pregnant and flourishing society. Everybody wants us to have babies. It's the old adage, right? 
Uh, they want women to have babies. They want women to work like they don't have children. And they want women to be moms like they don't work. So to combine those two things is almost virtually impossible. But I digress. So yeah, so the system is broken. It's against us, right? Like how, so what's your message? I thought from reading your book, your message is, look, okay, we don't have an even playing field here, not even close. Things are going a little bit backwards. We're losing some of our rights. Where, you know, even the whole thing about diversity, sometimes I feel like people are now, there's a backlash against that in the workplace, in in politics and everything. You know, it's like all of a sudden that's a bad thing to aspire for or to, to try to put things in place to make that happen. So it's kind of up to us in the short term, I guess, to figure out how to behave in this system without, so that we can succeed and not be exhausted. Do I have that message right? Yeah, I mean, this is what all that I would add to it was I felt like there was a gap in the conversation where you can read all these traditional self-help books that give no context to why you feel insecure. (laughs) They give no context to why you're not making more money. On the flip side, you know, you can read plenty of literature about all the data and all the incredible advocacy work that is happening right now. And what I wanted to do when I wrote this book was simply write, like, it's called The New Playbook for a reason. You know, as I write on in the introduction, Kimberly, I know you've read it. I'm very clear about something. This book is not intended to, to leave our systems or our workplaces or our culture off the hook. It's not. Right book is written for a moment in time. My greatest wish, and I actually put this in the introduction, my greatest wish is that this book is irrelevant by the time that my six going on seven-year-old daughter enters the workforce because we figured some of this stuff out. But, you know, Kimberly, like you were talking about before, you know, in the 40 years that you've been in the workplace, like, I don't know about you, but I have goals and dreams and financial aspirations that can't wait 135.6 years for the pay gap to close. And so what I hope this book will equip women to do is, Kimberly, it's not about playing by my rules. It's about learning how to write your own rules so that you can feel authentic and thrive as you learn how to redesign your goals or own your message or set boundaries while still kicking butt as a leader. Um, and that's really what this book is all about, all about. Yeah, and I think that's so, I mean, so let's get into it because I think you're right. Setting boundaries is something that many women don't know how to do or haven't been taught how to do because that goes against, you know, you're a, a girl, you should be a good girl, you should be accommodating, you should be nurturing, blah, blah, blah. All the stuff that, you know, we're supposed to be doing. And not everybody you know, I mean, we, you can still do that stuff without like just taking on everything. So the first chapter in your book, and I've talked about this in my book, just with respect to perfectionism, is that perfectionism is not um, a good thing per se. You know, I always tell my daughters who tend to be overachievers, good is good enough, right? Like just do a good job. You don't have to be perfect because when you're perfect, it can sometimes really, uh, you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater and the only person who's going nuts over it is you. So I would like you to talk a little bit about perfectionism, the good girl curse, how it makes us less authentic. And I, I know this was in the other chapter, but I just thought this person who told you that you were so unauthentic and they found it utterly grating. I don't know who that lady is or person was, but wow. The most horrible <laughs> boss I've ever had. Who says that? Um, why I moved on to a bigger, badder, better paying opportunity on my second maternity leave. Yeah. Okay, Go, so girl. Address all of this, right? Because, 
what you're talking about is you're stringing together how perfectionism leads on to the chapter on untethering from external validation. And I, and these things are so intertwined. And, you know, Kimberly, as I write about in the book, I am a total recovering external validation addict. So um, all of these things are so true. So one of my favorite stories that I actually tell in the book is about my friend, Michelle, who today is an incredible lawyer and entrepreneur. But, you know, back when she was in college, she went in for a shiny internship in New York City and the company went under. And, you know, as Michelle tells the story, Kimberly, that degree at Wellesley wasn't going to pay for itself. And so Michelle was scrappy and she pivoted and she got a job at the Taco Bell in Parsippany, New Jersey off Route 46. And basically she shows up the first day, Kimberly, and they totally haze her. Um, where they're like, <laughs> yeah, this hey, story is amazing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Hey, newbie, here's a mop. Newbies clean the bathroom at closing. And I don't know about you, Kimberly. I've had some pretty horrible job experiences in my life. Nobody ever made me clean a Taco Bell bathroom at closing. Like that to me just feels horrific. Yeah, no, that sounds, I think that's pretty bad, really. And so what Michelle said, because she was like such a go-getter and a perfectionist, she said, oh, you know, no one's going to make that Taco Bell bathroom sparkle the way that I could make it sparkle. And so she was such a perfectionist, such an overachiever, that her managers were blown away by her work ethic that her reward was essentially cleaning the Taco Bell bathroom every single night for the rest of the summer. And what I tell women all the time is like our perfectionism is not always serving us. I mean, I know so many women who are cleaning the Taco Bell bathroom at closing in their work lives, in their power suits, right? Right. Um, So, you know, what Michelle was experiencing was what psychologists call the good girl curse, which is how many of us are socialized as young women to be good girls. But being good girls doesn't translate to making us successful executives and leaders. Tell us what happened with her because it was, it was, I, I read it, I felt so bad for her. (laughs) She ends up basically getting stuck there the entire summer. She doesn't get her time on the burrito bar. She doesn't get to man the drive through, you know, like these really are the stretch opportunities when you're working in Taco Bell. And, you know, you asked me before about perfectionism and authenticity. When we're stuck making the Taco Bell bathroom sparkle, we're caught trying to impress people. Um, And in my experience, the more we focus on being perfect, the less willing we are to take a chance to throw out that creative idea, to make an ask that could actually unlock not just impact for ourselves, but impact for the people and the teams and the organizations and frankly, some of the PNL that we serve. Yeah, I thought that was a brilliant story. And I think it is is actually a paradigm for what you say for a lot of women who are in the corporate world. They're still, you know, we're all sometimes still cleaning that Taco Bell bathroom. And it's crazy that because she did such a good job on the bathroom, they wouldn't let her like run the burrito bar, which is, yeah, that is the, you know, that's the thing you want to do when you're a Taco Bell. So this is like, to me, a real-time example of why being perfect is kind of not worth the time of day sometimes. I'm not saying, you know, devil may care, but, you know, you do a good job, but you fit it in within parameters and, and boundaries. So how, you know, how do we fight against this? What should women be doing? How can, you're a coach, you know, what can you, just a few tips for women like, to prevent them from going down this hole, this black hole, this vicious cycle, you know, because I know for me, I'm, and I, like I said, I'm way older than you and I've gone through so many iterations and great experiences, horrible experiences. You know, I had changed my whole life at 54 with a terrible gray divorce and running out of money and all that other stuff that, you know, people know about me uh, from my writings and from my podcast. But, you know, I have to now 
at my age, I finally, finally have gotten to the point where I have boundaries and I don't jump every time somebody asks me something that might feel like I should do it, but I know deep down it's not in my best interest to do it. So I don't do it. And that actually happened to me this morning, this very morning. So someone in my company asked me about whether I was going to get a couple of clients to join on to something that we are offering. It is not right for those two clients to do that right now. It's just not good for them. And as they are my clients, I don't want to open that Pandora's box because I don't think it's the best time. It may be better next year. So I felt the pressure that I should be trying to get them to do this now but I was like, this is not a good, I just said, this is not a good time for either of them. Here are the reasons why. So I'll be, you know, I'm going to kind of address, readdress this in 2024. But then when I, I did that and I felt really good about it, but then immediately after I did that, I felt a little bit like guilty or bad. Like, oh, I hope I don't look like I'm not being a team player or whatever, but I am being a team player for me and for my clients and for my book of business. But even now I have to go through that mental process with myself because my knee-jerk reaction, I actually did the right thing, but after it, my knee-jerk reaction was to feel a little bit queasy about it. Okay, wait. So before I even talk about boundaries, I just want to pause with you about this idea of guilt because this is something I talk about in the book too. I can't stand the way that we use the word guilty. So I just want to refresh and refresh, right? What is guilt? Guilt is what we feel when we cross our own personal code of conduct or violate our values, Right? When we cross our own personal code of conduct or violate our values. And I just want to push you, Kimberly, because I say this about everyone, and this is a great example. Did sticking up for your clients and their best interests, which not to mention you probably have a fiduciary responsibility to do, let alone an ethical responsibility to do, did that actually cross your personal code of conduct or your values? Like then that would be guilt. A hundred percent. What my guilt was driven by my old I'm 64. My little girl values that I should never violate, uh, you know, authority. And one of the things I've learned over my life, because I was a corporate securities lawyer, I was investment banker, and now I'm in wealth management. These are male dominated businesses. You know, men won't even, they wouldn't even have given that answer that I gave a second thought. They would have said, this is the deal. Move on. Not even had a minute to like ponder it to the email, Kimberly. And this is my whole point, right? We often use the word guilt when what we're actually feeling is fear of not getting our external validation or fear of what other people will feel about 100%. us. hundred percent. Can you, can you say that again? Say yes. that again, please. So I'm going to just say one more time. Guilt is what we feel when we violate our personal code of conduct and our values. What you're experiencing wasn't guilt from how I'm hearing it. It was a fear of not getting external validation or a fear of what other people will think of you. So the next time I challenge any of your listeners, you say, oh my God, I'm guilty. Check yourself. Are you in violation of your personal code of conduct? Are you in violation of your values? Or are you actually just really scared of what other people are going to think of you? That's fear, not guilt. That's brilliant. It sounds logical. Like we should all know that, but... We have had all this stuff like so ingrained in our heads. And it's not just my generation. It's younger people. It's even today in this day and age, we are still, I think, women and younger women and even young girls in school, we still are trained to feel guilt if we disappoint somebody, even if it's in our best interest or it is within our, we're doing the best thing for, in my case, my client, just because they weren't ready to make the change. And it's just like, you know, we're just so programmed to start feeling bad, but it is not about guilt. You're right. It's about approval. 
Yes, without approval. And, and let's talk about the boundaries too. You asked me like from a coaching perspective, um, and this is something I write about in the book. Okay, like why do we violate our boundaries? And Kimberly, I think there could be a future book in me that's just about boundaries. But, you know, in my experience, what I observed in my coaching practice was it's not enough to give people the tools. We have to understand why. And in my experience, Kimberly, there are three reasons why women are habitual boundary busters when we're so high performing on the outside, but so boundary busting on the inside. Number one is that we've gotten the cost calculus wrong. And here's what I mean by this, Kimberly. We tend to overestimate disappointing others and underestimate the impact of disappointing ourselves. So that's when we get the cost calculus confused. That's one. Number two is we mistake the voice of the inner critic, that voice of fear and self-doubt for the voice of reason. So there's always a time, Kimberly, I'm sure that you've made it to where you are in your career, both by setting boundaries, but also by stretching yourself when the right opportunity came. So it's not that we're always saying no, but really not not falling into the trap where we're letting fear and self-doubt masquerade as the voice of reason. That's another reason why we bust boundaries. And number three, and this was my kryptonite um, for so much of my 20s, was I was rewarded for busting my boundaries. Like, promotions, raises, accolades, right? So those are the three reasons. Number one, we get the cost calculus wrong. Number two, we're letting fear and insecurity masquerade as the voice of reason. And number three, we are rewarded for it. So the first step can relate to building boundaries is you need to know which one of these are your boundary busting kryptonites. Because every time we have a moment of awareness, we have a conduit to choice. Then when it comes to actually setting the boundaries, just two tips that I'll leave you with here today. It's enough to just say no. That's my first tip. Like, it sounds like the way that you said no, as you mentioned, was like a little maybe over explaining, but you still said no. It was definitely over explaining. A hundred percent. That's very perceptive. Yes. Yes. And usually when we're over explaining, over explaining is a total red flag inside of us that either we are fearful of of not receiving external validation or fearful of not um, receiving approval or we're not feeling solid in our position. So number one is you can always say no. And if no feels radical, you might not be doing it wrong because no takes practice. But the second tool, and Kimberly, this was my favorite interview, perhaps one of my favorites, I should say, that I did in the entire book was sitting down with Colette Gregory, who is a mental health counselor turned corporate trainer with the Second City Improv Troupe, where Tina Fey and so many other SNL alum cut their teeth. And Kimberly, do you know what the cardinal rule of improv is? I don't know. Okay. My favorite way to set a boundary is to borrow the cardinal rule of improv, which is to use yes and. And as Colette explains it, as a corporate trainer and as an improv comedian, is that what yes and allows us to do is it allows us to set a boundary in a collaborative way. Because when we use yes and, we are not accepting the other person's perspective necessarily, but we're acknowledging and co-creating. And so Kimberly, can I give you a few examples of how like my clients literally use yes and? Yes, please. you know, this is how I've coached so many of my clients to use yes and at work. Yes, I would be happy to take on this project and I am on a deadline until the end of the month. I will be able to turn to it on July 1. Yes, I would be happy to discuss participating on this executive committee. And why don't we sit down next week in our check-in and talk about what the strategic priorities are for the year so that we make sure that we're aligned on goals, uh, deadlines and deliverables. So that's like in a corporate setting. Kimberly, I use yes and all the time in my personal life. My mother-in-law asked if she could come visit a few weeks ago on what I think is the absolute worst week of the year for me, but she has a conference. So it's not like she's choosing to visit. So I literally wrote to her in the text. I said, yes, you are always welcome in our home. And of all the weekends of the year, that is probably the last one I would have set up for a proper visit. 
why don't you come just these specific days and let's find another time for you to come have a more extended visit with the kids. That's really great advice. And I think when we are negotiating in our homes about also things like division of labor and things to that nature, this could be a very effective tool instead of being confrontational or, you know, kind of giving people ultimatums. It's like, okay, we're going to be collaborative here. So yes, I can do dinner two days a week and, but I'm going to be busy on these other nights because I have late meetings. So maybe you can pick up the slack on those days and we can have like a schedule or something. But I think that's really a brilliant way to do it because it, it's very positive, you know. So how does this re- relate to improv? I, because I yes, and, yes and is the goals and rule of improv. So the goals and rule of improv, Kimberly, is that like you never say no in an improv skit. So you could be like, there's a hot dog in the radiator or there's, there's a bowling ball in the zookeeper's bag. And the goals and rule of improv is that I can never say no to you. I'd say, yes, and... Did you see the bowling ball has cheetah stripes? And you would say, yes, and. So um, actually, um, sidebar for anyone who's listening who does, you know, outside training for teams and is always looking to bring in speakers. This is not even a plug for myself. One of the best trainings we ever did in my corporate career was we brought in an improv troupe to do a training on how to bring improv uh, skills into communication in the workplace. So that was when I met Colette, we were both speaking at the same conference a few years ago. And I was like, it just clicked for me. Um, I was like, you know, fangirling her. I was like, can I interview you for my book? Um, And it was just such a delight. Oh, that sounds awesome. And what a great, uh, I'm going to use that myself. So I have that written down. So now I know I'm going to use yes and. You also talk about quieting the inner critic and then imposter syndrome. And I think imposter syndrome is something that we talk about a lot and people think it's okay to talk about it or think that they're doing that. And you kind of, I think talk in a different way about that. And I'd like you to elaborate a little bit. Yes. It, you know, I, I say about reading the book that I want people to treat it as more of a buffet than a prescription, right? Like I'm not giving you a one size fits all kind of recipe for anything, rather kind of sample what you want and take it away. But Kimberly, it's the exception that makes the rule. And if there was one thing I want people to take away from today, it is to remove the term imposter syndrome from your vocabulary. And I discuss this in depth in the book. There is so much academic research about how damaging this term is and about how using the term imposter syndrome is really just the internalization of the systemic bias and iniquity that we face every single day going to work in a workplace that was not set up for our success, especially from women who come from marginalized communities, especially for women who come from marginalized communities. And what I would say is that that's why I like to use the term inner critic, because inner critic allows me to name my self-doubt and gives you a term to name your self-doubt and your self-judgment without taking on the macro environmentals into the conversation with us, right? And so I think of the inner critic as kind of, you know, Kimberly, what I think of is like this Long Island iced tea of fear. It's like a fear of rejection, failure, humiliation, all of these things. And um, listen, I don't like to micromanage how people have fun on the weekends, but my rule about Long Island iced teas, whether it is real or the Long Island iced tea of fear, is this like, you can sip on that fear, but do not get drunk on it. Because what happens when we get drunk on that Long Island iced tea of fear is we start to move through our career minimizing failure instead of maximizing success. It's a phenomenon called loss aversion. And when our inner critic is overactive or we don't have a way to handle and turn down the volume on that self-doubt, that's when we run into problems. 
And you have a really good example in your book about Babe Ruth, which I think is really, really good. I mean, and I think we should view, you You go ahead and tell it, but I think it's something that I like the way he thought about this. Yes. I think that, you know, my, my dad and my brother, they're so proud of me that I wrote a book. And I think that when I, my, they're huge Yankees fans. And I think that when they saw this, I always joke like with my dad, I'm like, just tell me the truth. This was like your proudest moment, right? That I got Babe Ruth. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. So we know Babe Ruth as being famous for, you know, being this home run slugger who held the record for years and years and years in Major League Baseball. But what people really don't know about Babe Ruth is that he simultaneously for many years held the record for home runs and records for strikeouts. And I think that that's just so fascinating because he's only known for the wins, right? Um, right. But we have to be willing. I think there's a metaphor there to swing for the fences. And, and sometimes that means that we strike out. And, you know, Kimberly, in researching the book, I was just curious. I was like, who is the guy with the least amount of strikeouts, right? And it was some guy named Joe Sewell. He's in the MLB Hall of Fame. But, you know, we have thousands and thousands of copies of this book out there. I've talked to so many men and women who have read it. And they're like, I never knew who this guy was. It was like, me neither. I literally was like Googling on my computer one day while I was drafting the manuscript. And I think so many of us are going through life, Kimberly, as the Joe Sewell, making sure that we don't strike out. Right. When we have an opportunity to channel a little bit more Babe Ruth energy, you know, swing for the fences. You know, we're actually recording this on a day where I'm feeling really inspired based on a conversation I had with someone else this morning to really even push myself like, wait, like, how am I swinging for the fences? How am I playing big? And so, you know, authentically, as I talk about in the book, like, these are real things that I think about and work through. And I tell some very raw, authentic stories about myself in this book. But, you know, today is a day where I'm thinking about swinging for the fences. So it's really timely that you asked me this today. And I hope that the women who are listening will also feel empowered to do the same. And you also uh, said in the book that he, Babe Ruth, said, every strike brings me closer to my next home run. So I want to talk about reassessing productivity and the productivity lie. But before we do that, what is swinging from the fences looking like to you today? What does that mean? Are you going to write another book? Are you going to start another platform? What's in your brain right now? Yeah, what's in my brain is I was just talking to a friend this morning who in the last six months has moved to another country and is opening up her own retreat center. And I was like, wow. I was like, I'm playing it so much safer than I give myself credit for. So I can tell you, you know, what Spain for the Fences looks like for me right now is we're recording three weeks before I'm taking the entire summer off as a book tour recovery sabbatical mode. And what I'm really pushing myself to do from a creative perspective on that summer sabbatical is to really get creative and bolder about how we can do more in person and really push myself to think about how we continue to make something major more experiential, moving from just two in-person retreats a year that are a single day in a single city. So Stay tuned. Um, but that's what I'm really pushing myself to feel more creative about. And I probably will write another book. I've started to take notes. Um, but it's like asking a woman after she gave birth like 10 weeks ago, she's going to do it again. I'm like, my baby's still not sleeping through the night. I can't even think about it. I'm like in the book version of that right now. <laughs> yeah, no. And I mean, I have a, some other books in me, but right now I have, you know, I'm a wealth manager. I have a full-time job. This is my side hustle and I love it. But it took me two years of weekends writing that book and getting up at odd hours to do it. And it's my passion and I'm so happy I did it. But okay, so there are so many other things I want to talk to you about, but time is of the essence. You say in your book that the productivity lie does not leave room for a vision of productivity as defined through the spectrum of women's lived experiences, let alone the LGBTQ community. I just, 
I think that 100%. I've thought that for a bazillion years. I think that when people are always saying, no, there should be no remote work, everybody needs to show up and be in the office. And I, we have this in my own company. And I think all of that is crazy because it doesn't accommodate women in their caregiving and all the other stuff they do. So could you just briefly tell us what you, what you have to say about that? Because I think it's a very important point. Absolutely. And, and that quote that you read is from Blessing. She's a, a, a dear longtime friend of mine. She wrote a great article a few years ago in Fast Company called The Productivity Lie. And in the book, I tell her own incredible story of, you know, coming to terms as a, a mom of four, an entrepreneur, a chemical on- engineer, a Fortune 500 yeah. executive. And so I actually think it's one of the best stories in the whole book. So I love that you It's a very compelling story. So please buy this book and read it because there are a lot of compelling stories. Yeah, it's a great blessing. She's so amazing. Um, and she's probably one of the best people to follow on LinkedIn. So make sure you throw her a follow. Um, but what I was going to say is, you know, what Blessing and I really see eye to eye on, and we just did an event together a few weeks ago for her community, MH Work Life, is, you know, this idea that we spend so much time and energy, especially as women, performing our productivity. In the book, it's something I piggyback on Blessing on and call performative productivity culture. And that's a series of workplace norms and habits, Kimberly, where our commitment to performing our the hustle and grind culture supersedes performing the deep work tasks that we need to do good work. So it's showing up for the 17th Zoom of the week because you want to get credit for being there. It is keeping your light on on Slack or Teams when actually you don't want to be disturbed because you're trying to work on a really big document or slide deck or just whiteboard something. And so one of the things I talk about in the book, really two things about productivity. Number one is we must shift our mindset from whether we want to be productive or impactful. Because getting your to-do list done doesn't actually make you an impactful leader. In fact, being impactful requires you to be ruthless about the things that you are going to say yes to and equally ruthless about the no's that are going to protect the yes. And that often requires boundaries or delegation or negotiating deadlines with your stakeholders. And research shows that women are significantly less likely to even ask about a deadline, let alone renegotiate it. So that's number one. Number two, the final thing I'll say, Kimberly, about productivity, and I write about this in the book as well, is that we need to be really self-aware as high-performing women about something I've observed in my coaching practice for years, which is, wait, why are we constantly procrastinating and hiding out in our productivity? And there's three reasons. Number one, I find that we are just so overwhelmed by how overwhelmed we are that we tend to burrow into productivity as a coping mechanism. And I know it sounds counterintuitive, but Ashley Willens at Harvard Business School, she uses this great analogy. She's like, if my to-do list is stacked and I can say, go to the gym, make a smoothie and cross those things out, it gives me the illusion that I have control, but it just adds to the problem. Number two, and we talked about this coming full circle, Kimberly, in the beginning, is that we tend to hide out in productivity when we're feeling really perfectionistic and in fear of that approval, specifically not receiving it. And then number three, and I think this is the scariest and most insidious one, we tend to burrow in productivity when we're so scared to ask ourselves questions about why we're doing what we're doing or what we want to do with our career or our life. Because it's a lot easier to say, oh God, I'm just so inundated with projects. I don't have time to ask the hard questions right now. And these are really, really damaging. So I really hope that, you know, I know this is the final point you wanted to hit, that the women who are listening will feel more inspired to say, wait, how can I perform my productivity less? How can I be impactful, not productive? And wait, where might I be hiding out in my productivity? Because again, I said it before, I'll repeat it, Kimberly. Every time we have a moment of awareness, we have a moment of choice. Right. And I think if you want to flourish and swing 
from the trees, you know, try to get to those big goals that you, you're really passionate about. If you are constantly busy checking off your list, you are not taking time out to think, to feel, to explore in your own head what it is you really want to do with your life. Like we only have one go around guys. And I can tell you, the older you get, the smaller the window becomes. And I'm not even close to stopping. And I have a lot of of my colleagues who are retiring now or whatever they're doing. And I'm just like, yeah, that just means me going out to lunch and drinking wine that gives me a headache. So I still have a lot of things I want to accomplish and I still am swinging from the trees. But if I don't sit, if I don't take time And what I often do is I put the do not disturb thing on my phone and I put it face down and I just say, okay, the next two hours I am going to be focusing on this project and that is it so that I can think about it in a correct way and I can get the most out of it without being disturbed every five minutes by buzzing and blinging and all the other stuff. As we wrap up, I know you have a list in your owning your message part of the book about, you know, certain things you shouldn't say and you shouldn't do, which I think is actually brilliant. But I'm going to leave you to just give us a few of the salient ones that you think are game changers and are just non-negotiable. Yeah, and for my list of 16 things I forbid you to say at work. Number one, stop saying sorry when what you really meant was thank you, excuse me, hello, goodbye. Um, half the time, you don't even need to say sorry. You can sit in the silence. You can say thank you for your patience. Please stop saying sorry when you're not sorry you're undercutting yourself. Number two, stop posing your statements as questions. Um, have we thought about this idea? Have we considered this? Um, all you're doing is you're throwing a great idea into the air and letting someone else scoop it up and claim credit for it. And then, you know, there's 16 things, but one other thing I would just say is stop putting yourself down and hedging. So I can't stand when I hear women say, oh, you know, you guys have been working on this so much longer than I have. Or, you know, I'm just, I'm not as much of the expert as you are. Just, just blurt it, just blurt it. And you know what? If it is an idea that falls flat, then you just use yes and, and you just keep on going with the conversation, right? And I also like that you say, take control. Like don't sit around letting other, you know, everybody else talk and take, if you have a great idea and it's yours, take control. Take control and jump in. And, you know, sometimes people say, well, how do I break into the conversation? Or what if someone is talking over me? Um, if someone's talking over you, just sometimes, like, the boldest thing to do is to simply keep talking. Yes. Keep talking. Um, yep. Or to simply say, oh, I wasn't done yet. Allow me to finish my point. I wanted to finish this idea, Mark, and then I'll turn it over to you. Smile, but be direct. Yeah, and say, I'm sorry I'm not finished or whatever. You know, you're oh, allowed I'm to speak. See, Kimberly, not I'm sorry I'm not finished. I wasn't done yet. I'm going to finish my thought. Yeah, exactly. There you go. There you go. No sorries. That's it. See, it's so ingrained. You know, when you offend someone or embarrass someone or hurt someone, then sorry is appropriate. I'm actually thinking of just saying Randy Braun for president, but... I do know this. If you're watching the video of this, you have to buy this book, Something Major, the new playbook for women at work. It's an awesome book. You can see I have lots of little tabs on mine if you're looking at the video. I think it's a game changer for women. And I really, really, really liked reading this book. I think there's just so many real stories in there that we all can relate to. And it's inspired me in many ways to not say I'm sorry, even though sometimes I do. Old habits, you know, take a long time. But now it's in my head, right? Randy, I can't thank you enough for your time. Just again, please tell the audience where they can find you. Um, Are you on Instagram? All that stuff. You can find me in a few places. Number one, you can find my book, Something Major, The New Playbook for Women at Work on Amazon or your independent bookseller. If they don't have it in stock, just ask and they'll order it for you. 
That's number one. Number two, you can find me at my website, somethingmajorcoaching.com. That's where you can learn about all the great events that Kimberly was asking me about. Um, it's where you can read my blog there. I can't underscore this enough, Kimberly. There's so much free content on that website, and we never ask you for anything unless you want to sign up for the newsletter. Um, and then number three, you can, of course, find me on social media. So on LinkedIn, I'm Randy with an I, Braun, B-R-A-U-N, like the electric coffee maker, but I'm not the heiress to the fortune. Or you can find <laughs> me on TikTok and um, Instagram as something major coaching. It's just been such a delight, an absolute delight to spend this time with you. I'm so inspired by you. And thank you for inviting me to share my book and my perspective with your incredible community, Kimberly. Well, we are very thankful that we got to hear from you. You're on a mission that is very important. Thank you for your brilliance and your compassion and your just your advice. I mean, you know, everybody needs to read this book. So please go buy it. It's really important. And buy one for your daughter and your niece and your colleague at work who's struggling with some of this stuff because we're all in it together and we all have to support each other as women because if we don't do it, no one else is going to do it. I can assure you of that. So it's up to us. Thank you for listening today to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. And I would really appreciate if you could also rate and review it. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at The Fiscal Feminist or check out the website FiscalFeminist.com. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today.